0: How
1: long has it been?
0: I was trying to figure that out, Dave. I don't know the last time we've talked. It's been a long time—twenty
1: years, anyway.
0: I—I I would venture to say it's been at least fifteen. Yeah.
1: Well, you look great, man, and you're—you're you're a grandpa now. I understand.
0: I'm a grandpa. I've got a grandson, Wesley James.
1: <laughs> How old is he?
0: He is three and a half months old.
1: That's it. Huh? Just a
0: bundle of joy. Yeah.
1: The rest of the family's good. Samantha's good. Every,
0: Samantha's good. The girls are good. Life is good. And you?
1: Oh, I can't. I, I You know, Carol Ann and I have been in Dallas for uh, uh, about 11 years. Absolutely love it. And uh, our kids and their kids are still in California. We miss California, but, you know, you don't have to stay on their backs the rest of their lives.
0: <laughs> this is true.
1: We need to start with your personal story and and your struggle with severe obsessive compulsive disorder. But before that even, can you give us a definition of OCD? I think it's one of those things that people tend to refer to in a joking manner, like, oh, yes, I guess I've got early Alzheimer's or something like that. But uh, this is no joking matter when it comes to people like you. So give us an idea of what this is. What is OCD?
0: Yeah, OCD is a brain disorder, Dave, and it is a combination of obsessions, intrusive thoughts that literally get stuck in the brain, and compulsions, which are these ritualistic actions that those of us with OCD take in this futile effort to try to dislodge those obsessive thoughts. So it's kind of the dog chasing its own tail. Uh, It's thought to affect somewhere between 1% and 2% of the American population at any given time. Uh, which means that there are millions of people out there who are struggling with this. And you touched on something really important in terms of sort of the misuse of the term. We in the community that are advocating for OCD awareness like to say that OCD is not an adjective. It does not mean fastidious or anal retentive. And a lot of people uh, misuse the term to suggest that, you know, my boyfriend is so OCD about cleaning his car. Well, OCD is actually a brain disorder. It is a biologically based uh, brain disorder that requires intervention in the form of either behavioral cognitive behavioral therapy or medication or some combination of the two and left untreated, it can be incredibly debilitating. So it is much more than an adjective.
1: Is it something that uh, can can be uh, experienced in, in terms of various severity? I mean, can somebody have absolutely Just just a little bit of OCD.
0: There is a continuum, but it's sort of a, a misnomer to say that there is that we all have a touch of OCD. Yeah. I have learned over the years that we all deal with anxiety. We all have weird quirks. That's been something I've sure. learned over the years through my outreach. Um, and we all struggle with uncertainty. But by definition, uh, what we're calling obsessive compulsive disorder as a clinical disorder is in fact biologically based. And while there is a spectrum of severity, it is not something that we all have a touch of.
1: All right, let me ask you about mine, because I always thought this was a touch of, and maybe what I'm talking about is just, you know, a little quirk, but uh, I have this tendency to count things for no reason at all. In In terms of repetitive actions, for example, yesterday I was taking clothes out of the washing machine and putting them into the dryer, one item at a time, and I, in my head I'm counting them. There's no reason to do that. Is, is that a touch of OCD? Or is that just, you know, like I say, a quirky thing?
0: Well, first let me say that that is the most common question I have received in 15 years of doing outreach around OCD is, is this OCD? Everybody I've found has really interesting quirks. And so I always throw them back uh, this, these couple of questions. One, to what degree does this get in the way of your day? And two, to what degree of agony would you be in if you couldn't do that particular quirk? And usually for most people, the answers are, eh, it doesn't get in the way of my day at all. Right. And two, yeah. no big deal if I didn't do it. It just sort of brings me a sense of comfort. Um, is, is that the case for you, Dave, for those quirks?
1: Yeah, exactly. Although I would say, rather than bringing me a sense of comfort, I always always catch myself and think, well, that's weird. Why do I do that? You know. But that's it. That's as far as it ever goes. It doesn't get in the way of life. You-
0: Yeah. And let me give you an interesting sort of, of contrast here. I have one of the most organized closets in the country. I, when I am on my game, have color-coded hangers for short sleeves, long sleeves, polo shirts, t-shirts, and so forth. Right now I can tell you my closet looks nothing like that. But, um, when I'm on my game, that's what it looks like. Now it would be really tempting to say that's part of Jeff's OCD. It's actually not. It's part of what you might call an OCD or an OCD pd obsessive compulsive personality disorder which is something completely different um, because it doesn't get in the way of my day and it does not bring me distress if my closet is not organized in that fashion it is not at this very moment if i pulled back those uh, curtains back there you'd see that Um, the distinction being that that which falls under the domain of ocd for me my hazard compulsions. We can talk more about those, but at my worst, I had to pick up rocks and twigs from sidewalks because I was afraid that they were going to cause hazards and cause harm to people. If I didn't pick those rocks up, it would cause great distress for me to the point where I could barely get through my day, which is that other half of that equation, which is how debilitating or how much of a hindrance is it to my day. I could be completely off my game all day long because I didn't pick up a particular rock or twig. So really? there is there is that distinction. We all have these kind of weird quirks. A lot of people say I like to line up the soup cans in my kitchen in a particular fashion, for example. Yeah. Is that necessarily O C D? No. Could it be O C D? Yes. It doesn't matter. And and that
1: and well, answering that question is is the bottom line for each of us, is that right?
0: A- absolutely. It, it, it matters for somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder because of the distress that it raises and the debilitating nature of the OCD cycle. Um, for you, nah, it's just a quirk. And you're in good company, Dave, because as I've said, the more I talk about OCD over the years, the more I get that very question, I've got this weird quirk where I pull my socks up three times. Is that OCD? <laughs> and it's interesting. I don't, I don't know why we all have these weird quirks, but we do.
1: Well, it's interesting in that, um, because I've read, read, read your first book and it's been a few years and I want to get deeply into that in a minute, but, um, after reading the book and I realized these, this, this one, this one thing, and I, I, I count things for no reason whatsoever. Uh, I thought it made me realize how lucky I am that that's all I got, you know, yeah. and how, how extremely, uh, invasive. It must be to your life. When you, when you have a severe case of OCD,
0: it really can be, it can be incredibly debilitating. And and as I shared in that first book, rewind, replay, repeat, um, it, in, in fact, in many of those years that you knew me in Sacramento, Dave, I was just living this incredibly elaborate double life because where I was a fairly normal sounding guy on the radio, unbeknownst to listeners and even the people I work with you and Kitty, who shared a studio with me for so many years and so forth, mm-hmm. um, I was caught in these vicious cycles day in and day out. Explain,
1: give us some examples.
0: Well, this one will blow you away. You know, how how we as operators in a studio were responsible for playing commercials and checking off on a official log that we played those commercials. I, for the longest time, could not accept that I was actually playing the commercials that I was putting down on paper that I had aired. And after my air shifts, I would go back and replay air checks of those hours and go through them and make sure that I had actually played the commercials that I said I was going to be playing. Wow. (laughs) That was a rather tedious, time-consuming, debilitating pattern in my life for years. At some
1: point. At at some point in in all of this, and you have far more extreme examples from that book that I want to have you explain. We'll get right to that because uh, it it is mind-blowing stuff. But what I keep thinking about as I was reading the book when it first came out was, well, Jeff is one of the smartest guys I know. How does he not just go, okay, this is me. Obviously I'm just doing this again and I can just forget about it because I don't need to go back and check and see if I hit somebody with my car or whatever it is that has got you going around in circles. Why can't your, your, um, uh, you know, your, your logic, your personal intellect take over and say, just shut up there. OCD, leave me
0: alone. Dave, you just used a word that I talk about a lot in my outreach and that's intellect and intellect I say is the bullied little brother of emotion. Emotion is a much stronger motivator for our patterns of behavior than intellect. And what happens is those of us with the OCD brain, which we have determined, I would say we scientists have determined and proven through, um, brain imaging that the OCD brain is both structurally and functionally different from the non-OCD brain. I won't call it the normal brain because there's no such thing, but OCD yeah. brain versus non-OCD brain, there are wiring differences. And what happens is the amygdala fires. The amygdala is our fight or flight response. And it can be triggered by uh, a, a bear, which kept our, you know, our predecessors from um, getting in trouble because they would either fight the bear or run from the bear, um, or it can be triggered by anything real or imagined. And for those of us with OCD, the imagined triggers are just as strong as the real triggers, and we behave as if there is that real threat in our lives. So when, once the amygdala is triggered, gosh, what if I ran somebody over with my car? It doesn't matter how much intellect I might be able to wrap around that to know that I didn't run somebody over, the emotion is so strong that it, yeah. that it with the amygdala's backing, it triggers all these b- bizarre, counterproductive, debilitating behaviors.
1: I can imagine you thinking, okay, this probably didn't happen, but probably is not good enough. I've got to fix, I've got to figure this out.
0: You're absolutely right. And the two words that always come up for somebody with OCD are what if, Yeah. what if this happened and and fill in the blank for, you know, what, what comes after that, what if, and, you know, I, I like to say for people who are trying to get a glimpse of what OCD feels like, can I give you a couple of examples here, Dave?
1: Yes, please.
0: So you ever get an, uh, an, an ear bug, something stuck into your brain that you know oh, yeah. a little ditty or a song, you know, uh, it's a small world after all. You'll be thanking me in a few hours for raising that one, okay? So yeah. uh, uh, imagine that ear bug that you've got, and turn up the volume a thousand fold, and take that cute little ditty of "It's a Small World After All" and make it the most distressing thought you could pers- po- possibly think of at this moment. And that's just a taste of what an obsession feels like. It's just all consuming. It's right here. It's what if, what if right there in front of you. And then because that is so disturbing, so distressing. And I think you would agree that that would be distressing for anybody to have that kind of an all intensive sort of, um, thought stuck in your brain. You would do anything to dislodge that thought. And that's what happens is we, we start taking these ridiculous actions that seem like they would be productive for re- reducing the volume. So if the what if question is, what if I ran somebody over with my car, the quote unquote logical response to that might be, well, I'm going to turn my car around and go back and check and make sure that I didn't run somebody right, over. Let's,
1: let's, let's go to that because I've okay. mentioned it a few times now and it uh, stands out in, in your book. Tell us that story of your life.
0: Yeah. So for the longest time, and I should probably preface this by saying there are so many different flavors of OCD. There are folks who have contamination concerns. There are folks who have hyper-responsibility concerns. There are folks who have order concerns. I mean, there's a litany of subvariants of OCD, both by obsession and by compulsion. My obsessions, Dave, have always revolved around one root obsession, which is, what if I unknowingly through my negligence harmed or might harm someone or something? It's a very common subvariant of OCD. It's called harm OCD or sometimes called hit and run OCD. It's a really disturbing human situation where we find ourselves, from both a moral standpoint and a practical standpoint, questioning whether we have done something wrong and unknowingly so we can't fix it. So, for me, the greatest opportunity in my day to cause harm that would be significant and require my action would be driving a car, right? And so at my worst, and for so many years, when I would drive a car and run over a pothole, the car would rattle. And I would think like most people thought who would drive over a pothole, gosh, I ran over a pothole. But then that voice of doubt, which I call my, uh, my doubt bully is right there to say, well, what if dot, 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 that wasn't a pothole you ran over, but rather a body you ran over. Now, to your point, Dave, about intellect, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. I've got a degree in engineering. I understand physics. I understand at some intellectual level that running over a pothole versus running over a human being would feel like very different things, okay? So, I mean, for the outside person to try to wrap their head around, well, why doesn't he get that? I understand how difficult that is to understand from an outside perspective, especially if we look at it just from intellect. But again, intellect is the bullied little brother of emotion. Emotion is right there to say, Oh my gosh, what if, what if you're wrong about this? What if that wasn't a pothole? And despite all intellectual evidence, you're wrong about this, Jeff, and you actually ran somebody over. So that thought would be so disturbing and my amygdala is triggered, much like a bear just been chasing after me and I've got fight or flight going in my body. I've got to do something, it feels like. So I turn the car around and I drive back and I see that there is a pothole in the road And I get a payoff, Dave, I get an immediate payoff. It's ephemeral. It's gone in a second, but it's there. I got a payoff. It felt good to see that there was a pothole in the road. I can explain what happened. So I start to drive off. Is that the end of this ordeal? Oh, I I was going to say, so,
1: you know, most of us go, oh, thank God. Okay. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And you go on with your day.
0: Exactly. Now for me, I drive down the road. There's tap, tap, tap on my shoulder. It's my OCD doubt bully and says, okay, Jeff. You saw a pothole in the road. I will grant you that. But does that preclude the fact that coincidentally there might also be a body nearby that you ran over? Like, well, no, I guess technically not. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I better turn the car around and go back and check again. So I turn the car around and I go back and I check and I see that there is not a body in the road. And so again, ephemeral payoff, I feel better. I drive down the road again. Is that enough? No, because the doubt bully says to me, maybe the body rolled over to the side of the road. So you better go back and check the shoulder. Let me just say it's a good thing that the highway patrol never saw me going through the bushes along I-80. It's okay, <laughs> officer. I'm just looking for a body I might have run over. I did that, Dave. I did that. Day after day, I would turn the car around and drive it in circles.
1: So in your, fact, your doubt, your doubt instinct, your amygdala or whatever it was was actually overriding your logic and using your logic to create these these uh, circumstances that might have happened.
0: Exactly. And and where this becomes all but comical, and I, I like to use a lot of humor in my outreach because I, I'm not going to deny the fact that this is just on its surface, ridiculously comical, I mean, to some degree. Um, not fun when you're going through it, but to the outside perspective, I mean, how can you not look at this and just all but laugh at some of the absurdity of it all? I I get that. So here's the absurdity for me, Dave. During my reporting years as a street reporter at KCBS for a lot of years, I had so much challenge getting to the scene of a story to report on it. The reporting was the easy part for me. I mean, I know that comes as a difficulty for a lot of people to go live and talk about something happening in front of them and describe it. That was all easy for me. Getting to the scene of the story was the most difficult part because of the driving. And unbeknownst to my bosses for a good stretch of my time street reporting at KCBS, I would take the news van out, park it around the corner and take a cab to a breaking news story because it was a workaround for me. My bosses later got a big kick out of that when I came clean about that not a very cost-effective way of, of making a living, but you, you get creative. And that was also not an easy way to avoiding... make a
1: deadline. If you have <laughs> no. to be someplace in a particular time, uh, yeah. let, let me, let, let's go back in time to, uh, when you were a child, at what point, uh, I started to say, well, At what point would you realize that this is what was going on? I got, but I guess not at all, because it was just, uh, it was just part of your natural life. You probably thought everybody did these things, or maybe you never thought about them at all.
0: Great question all the way around. So I, I do remember pretty vividly my, my first OCD episode, if you will. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have called it that back then, nor could have my parents have known that terminology, but I was walking down the street with my mom and my sister in San Bruno where I grew up and a car drove by and a kid stuck his head out the window and yelled hello to me. Hey, Jeff the car kept going. Mm. And I couldn't make out who that kid was. And the next day at school, I asked all my buddies, Hey, was that you who waved hi to me on San Mateo Avenue? And Greg says no. And Steve says no. And Chuck says no. And no one's copying to having, having said hello to me. And that night, it was disturbing me greatly that following night after I had asked to see if any of my friends had said hello to me, and try to take out the uncertainty of who that kid was. I lay awake in bed and I squeezed my eyes shut and I replayed in my head that whole sequence. I could see the car going down the street. I could hear the kid's voice, but I couldn't make out his, his particular identity in any way, shape, or form. And it became this compulsion for me night after night, after night to replay that sequence in my head. I, I now know that to be what's called mental checking, which is a very common compulsion. So I'm doing this, And I don't know, maybe a week or two into this pattern, my mom comes into the room one night, she sees I'm still awake and agitated and says, you know, what's going on? Why aren't you sleeping? And I said, I can't figure out who this kid was. And she says, what kid? And I explained the situation to her and she remembers it now because I had asked her and my sister that day, if they knew who it was. And she said, I don't understand. Um, are you afraid that kid was trying to scare you or harm you in some way? And I said, no. And she said, well, why do you need to know? And that was profound because I remember thinking to myself at the time, I don't know why I need to know, but it feels like I need to know. And, and, you know, when I look at that and deconstruct it with all the hindsight of someone who's doing OCD outreach and has been through OCD therapy, it was an OCD cycle as a kid. You know, I was obsessing about not ever knowing who this kid was for whatever reasons. And my compulsion was just trying to remove that uncertainty by doing this mental checking. Um, The title of my first book, Rewind, Replay, Repeat, is a reference to that mental checking. I would, for years and years and years after doing my physical checking, like checking the cars and for bodies in the road over and over again, if I couldn't get the answers I was looking for, I would try to replay in my head the sequence that led to that shaking of the car or that mystery voice or whatever that was, always trying to remove uncertainty. Uncertainty is so uncomfortable for all of us, Dave, OCD or non-OCD, that all of us in our own way, do things to try to dislodge uncertainty in our lives.
1: So at that point as a child, did it become something of, of concern to you or at least of interest that, uh, you know, maybe not everybody goes through these things or does has these thoughts or feelings, or does it, you know, even occur to you that you're different in any way?
0: No, not in those earliest years. I remember thinking, that everybody must do this. This must be what everybody does. Um, And it it was tough for my parents in later years, once I was diagnosed and once I was doing my outreach, I can't tell you how many times my mother said, I just wish I had known. I wish I could have done something. The vernacular vernacular wasn't there back in the seventies. We didn't talk about mental illness. We didn't have terminology for these various disorders that would later be much better known. The running joke in our family was Jeff gets worried when he has nothing to worry about. I was a classic worrier and it was just something we kind of all laughed about. Um, what's so interesting is I had a kind of dormancy, about it, but
1: they didn't, your parents didn't think it was funny. That's a sad thing to think your, your child is, uh, always worried about stuff.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's interesting too, Dave, and, and and nobody has ever been able to give me a real clear answer on how this play or why it played out the way it did. My earliest memories are of OCD obsessions and compulsions, as I've just shared, but my high school and college years were essentially symptom-free. It wasn't until my late twenties that adult onset kicked in in a big way. And that's when my adventures with the worst of OCD really began in the early nineties. Um, and what that period of dormancy is about, I don't know, I call them my normal years, but they sort of gave me a benchmark for what non-OCD looks and feels like. And that, that was about a seven or eight year stretch there that mm. um, was all but symptom-free.
1: I'm just thinking about that. I'm trying to wonder if maybe that was part of your adolescent development, your progress into adulthood that kept your your system and your brain so... Uh, otherwise involved in in the world that uh, uh, you know you weren't just in a in a static state. I don't know if I I'm I'm, I'm just thinking because of uh, everything you say is so interesting to me.
0: It, it, it's quite possible, and, and Dave, you'll appreciate this as a longtime fellow radio guy. Radio, in retrospect, was my therapy. Live radio was what saved me over the years, because, and I, I think you'll you'll get this immediately. OCD is is about obsessing about what might have happened in the past and what could happen in the future. When I was in that studio for 4 or 5 hours a day doing live radio, that demanded me, that demanded of me that I be in the present moment. And there's no room for OCD right. in the present moment. And you know, it took me years to figure right. this out, but my best hours of every day were those hours I spent doing live radio in the studio.
1: Sure. I understand that completely When I was going through my divorce and uh, that seemed like the lowest point in my life emotionally uh, and everything else, uh, you know, going to work was uh, i was able to put it all out of my head for five or six or eight hours or whatever it was. That makes perfect sense. Is there, is there a cure for OCD?
0: So that's a great question. And, and one I get a lot. And, and, and the short answer is that there are differing opinions on that. Um, I have reached the opinion in, in through my outreach and through my research over the years that cure is the wrong word. For me, the success is learning how to navigate the uncertainty, learning how to live with OCD. OCD is a biologically based, neurologically based brain disorder. Um, and as I shared earlier, we we know through brain imaging that the OCD brain is in fact functionally and structurally different, whether or not we can rewire the brain is, is part of the ongoing debate. And I I'm, I'm optimistic about that, um, therapy and or medications make a huge difference. Both made a huge difference in my life. And I, I am held up often as a success story in the OCD community as somebody who's learned to navigate the day-to-day challenges of it but I would never say that I'm cured of OCD. It's always lurking right there. I choose not to act on the obsessions and I choose not to do the compulsions. And that's a big part of the recovery process.
1: That's, that was the next thing I wanted to ask you about what happens to you now? Are you able to, uh, you know, if, if the whole business about, uh, worrying about running over somebody came to you today, would you just, you know, tell that other part of you? screw you go away. I've got things to do
0: here. Largely. Yes. And I'd be lying to say that I never slip. I do slip at times. If I'm having a really bad, stressful day and I have an obsession that starts demanding compulsions of me, there are times where in a moment of weakness, I will do a compulsion. I'll turn the car around or I'll check a door more than I should. Um, but I, I don't want to put a percentage on this, but the majority of the time for sure, I am able to hold the line on the compulsions and it makes all the difference in the world because the the, the process of treating OCD is is pretty fascinating itself. And and this is consistent with standing up to the compulsions. The frontline therapy for OCD is something called exposure response prevention. Um, I used to joke about it as being called torture therapy because really what you're doing is you're being asked to sit with your very worst fears, but you work with a therapist and you do this systematically. You build a hierarchy. So if I'm a guy who's afraid of somebody else's germs, and that's a very common subset of OCD, contamination yeah. concerns. So let's say my worst fear is I'm going to catch Ebola. I mean, again, just some completely irrational thought, but a thought that has horrible consequences, okay? And my fear is that if I don't keep my hands clean and get other people's germs off of them consistently, I'm going to catch Ebola, okay? Just, just let's say that that is the cycle right there. I might work with a therapist and build a hierarchy with that therapist that starts something like, okay, if, if, if I were to have to go to a public place and, um, shake hands with a bunch of people who have recently been exposed to Ebola, where would that be on the scale of zero to 10? I said, Whoa, that's a 10. I can't do that. Okay. yeah. Now let's say you were just to go into a a neighbor's house um, and have to touch their doorknob and not wash your hand after touching the doorknob, where would that be? And that person's been nowhere near anybody who's been exposed to Ebola. Okay. That would be a one or a two. And you build this hierarchy, this ladder of challenges, and then you systematically work your way up to it where you are exposing yourself to that trigger. And then you are preventing yourself from acting on, the compulsion that's associated with that obsessive trigger. And you learn to sit with the anxiety and, and the great irony of all of this, and I call it the uncertainty paradox is that really what you come to learn over the years through therapy is that the only way to effectively navigate the uncertainty, the distress of the uncertainty is to embrace it. And the best analogy I I've ever run across, this is from a a book called freeing your child from OCD by Dr. Tamara Chansky. And I love this analogy. Remember when we were kids, we'd jump into a cold pool and our brains would say, cold, 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 get out, get out, get out. Yeah. But we don't, we're kids, we splash around and the water warmed up. No, what happened? The water didn't warm up. What happened?
1: Your body adapted.
0: We adapted, we got used to it. Right. We acclimate to it. I mean, to use the clinical terms, we habituated to it. We acclimated to that discomfort. Yeah. Now, if you imagine that cold pool of water as anxiety, And say that most of us, by human nature, when we sit with our anxiety, habituate to it. It's just part of normal day-to-day living. Those of us with OCD keep getting out of the cold pool of anxiety before we can acclimate to it. And so what happens is we never acclimate to it. It always is there. It causes us great distress. And ironically, the best way to have dealt with it was to stay in the anxiety as opposed to keep running from it by doing our compulsions.
1: Wow, that is interesting, isn't that? So interesting?
0: is that?
1: Yeah is 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 that, uh, is that the 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 process? Is that the prescription for people who have severe OCD is to uh, get therapy? Is there also a medicinal uh, piece that goes into all of this uh, uh, treatment?
0: there there is. There is a class of drugs, usually the SSRI selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. um and there are a class of about six of those that often are prescribed along with behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I, I, for me it it's it's really about learning how to change the behaviors, to change the the compulsive behaviors, as we talked about here, and that's that's the exposure response prevention piece. The medication sort of bring down the volume of the obsessive thoughts, which gives you a, a much better leg up on trying to do the hard work of changing the behaviors. And so they're often used in connection with each other. Um, I personally am not a big fan of just doing medication without changing the, the behaviors themselves, because I think that's sort of putting a bandage on the problem. But the gold standard for so many people is a combination of the two. Working with a trained therapist. I mean, this is something that that really can be tricky. And that's why a trained therapist can make all the difference in, in helping you overcome these challenges.
1: As I said, it's been a while since I read uh, that first book, rewind, replay, repeat. Uh, it, it seems to me, didn't you also tell a story in there about that had something to do with your boat? And oh, yes. A neighboring boat. Yes, You're concerned about hitting it or something. You, you, you repeat that for me, would you?
0: Yeah. So this was, this was my first adult onset episode. And I, in retrospect, I don't know that there was anything necessarily significant about the nature of this particular OCD cycle as much as the timing of it. But, um, I had taken my dad's sailboat out for a sail with a bunch of friends one night and the wind blew us across the way as I was backing the sailboat out and our engine died. And we had people fending off on the other Dock to get us past there because it was a fairly busy time Mm -hmm. in the harbor and there were people around and no harm, no foul. We went out, sailed, came back. A guy on the boat with me said, Oh, um, I'm glad that boat over there looks okay. I I heard some squeaking or some some screeching as we went past there. And um, I was afraid that we had bent the nose of that boat, is the the terminology that he used. And this was before I was diagnosed and that obsessive thought that I might have done some harm to the boat just created all kinds of anxiety in in my head. And I, I needed to make sure that we hadn't. So I went over and talked to the people who lived on board the boat and they said, no, there's no damage there. Again, no harm, no foul. We were there. We helped fend it off. Everything is fine. I could not let it go, Dave. And weeks went by and months went by and I would sit across, the waterway in that harbor and use a pair of binoculars and try to look at the boat and make sure that there was no damage on the boat. I could not accept that my negligence hadn't caused some harm to that other boat. And the what if questions kept ratcheting up that what if there's hidden damage that I wasn't aware of and the boat was going to sink slowly and it was all on me and people were going to die. And it just, it kept mushrooming and getting worse and worse and worse to the point where I went over and talked to the guy on the boat again, who, gave me my first sort of feedback as to where my mental state was, because he just looked at me like I was a creature in the zoo that he couldn't understand. He's the boat's fine. Uh, you know, you, you, you got to let go of this. And yeah. I mean, it, and it, it, this was my first introduction to an ongoing obsessive compulsive cycle. And you need to know at this juncture, I had no idea what was going on. I, 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 one of the, the, the cruel, twist with OCD is that those of us who battle these obsessions and compulsions are acutely and painfully aware of how nonsensical they are. Again, intellect and emotion. Intellectually, I understood nothing happened that day. I had taken the the right precautions at the time to fend off. I went over and talked to the people who, who potentially were involved and harmed. There was no harm, but I couldn't let go of it. And I didn't understand why I couldn't let go of it. And this was ultimately what led me to my first venture into the world of mental health therapy when I realized that this was just not normal behavior. It was all consuming. It, it, it just, it brought me down and down and down with each passing week and went on for months.
1: Through everything you've learned since then, uh, is this a problem where people often try to, uh, uh, what we say, medicate themselves with drugs or alcohol as opposed to looking for Uh, some sort of therapeutic relief?
0: I've seen that happen far too often. And there is growing research now on the comorbidity, as they call it, between addiction and anxiety disorders. And there is definitely a pairing that is problematic. And um, yeah, people are looking for relief from that all exhausting, intrusive nature of the obsessive cycle that it, it just wears you down. And without therapy, untreated OCD, you know, causes major lifelong problems for people. It's, it's debilitating.
1: You have, uh, you have two daughters now, as we said earlier, you have a brand new grandson. Is it, is this something that uh, is a genetic concern? Uh, can it be inherited? Have you worried over the years about your daughters having uh, any degree of this?
0: It can absolutely be genetic. Um, and, and one thing that, that's interesting, and I will just sort of weigh in on this for, for privacy standpoint, I don't, don't talk about their challenges one way or the other too often. Right, um, sure. But, sure. But, but I can share with you that the daughter of mine who was exposed to most of my worst years of OCD and, and watched me checking um, and rechecking and was actually pulled into some of my rituals over the years, Uh, did not develop patterns, anything like what I was going through. And it it sort of speaks to me about the nature versus nurture aspect of this debate with OCD and so many mental health challenges is that the environment that my older daughter grew up with, with me and my checking and rechecking and obsessive compulsive cycles, if it were to have triggered her environmentally, she would have developed these patterns and she never did. And, and... That's I, I see a lot of families where there's that genetic thread that does run through.
1: Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And again, you know, with com- complete understanding as to the sensitivity of, of, uh, your personal life and your, your family. But I'm curious as to in a gener- general general way or as specific as you wish to get, that's up to you. But how has this affected you through your life with other people and relationships? and your marriage and so forth.
0: Yeah. My, my wife has been described as a saint over and over again, Saint Samantha, because what she has had to put up with. And, and one of the really challenging aspects of living with, or, or just even supporting a loved one with OCD is there is a counterintuitive nature to what is best for your role in that relationship. When somebody is going through great pain, our natural inclination is to comfort. Right? Sure. And so when Samantha would see me obsessing about whether or not I had run somebody over or caused somebody harm in some way or some form, her natural inclination was to reassure me, to tell me that everything was okay, Mm -hmm. which was comforting to me, but ultimately became counterproductive. I became all but addicted to her reassurance around various challenges in my day to day life. And one thing you didn't know, Dave, during my years together working with you at KFBK is I would pick up the phone and call home for reassurance a half dozen times about various things. And ultimately, um, my therapist, when I was getting the right treatment, uh, brought Samantha into the mix and helped her understand that, you know, she needed to take behavior, needed to draw some lines that separated supporting from enabling in terms of her role in this process. And that there was often going to be a lot of tough love and saying, Jeff, I can't provide that comfort to you right now. You know, the answer to that question you're asking me, I'm not going to tell you again that it's okay. Um, so that was really challenging for Samantha and she's been through so much with me and I am so grateful for all of that for the kids. Yeah, it was tough. Um, in fact, I was just recently having a conversation about parenting with OCD. And there are so many challenges around that as well. And those challenges can really fall on the kids often as well. Um, I had daddy rules when the kids were out, which meant that they couldn't touch anything because I was so concerned about their harming products in a store or bumping into other people. And that being part of my harm responsibility, my hyper responsibility concerns. So the daddy rules when the kids would go shopping is they couldn't touch anything on a shelf. Well, I mean, that, that's not a healthy way to bring up your kids. And fortunately, mom was there when dad was not around to say, daddy rules don't exist today, Um, but there, and then beyond all of that, Dave, the ultimate compulsion, and we really haven't talked about this yet, but the ultimate compulsion is avoidance. And for the longest time, I thought that if I could just remove the triggers in my world, that I could get on top of my OCD. Well, that's counterproductive and we can circle back to that. But from a parenting standpoint that meant that I would avoid so many potentially triggering situations with my kids. I mean, I used to say that Chuck E cheese was the scariest place in the world for me. I couldn't take my kids there because what if I bumped into another kid or, I mean, all those other kids who were vulnerable around my kids. And so I chose not to partake in a lot of my children's childhood activities. Mm. And in retrospect, Um, my greatest regrets are that I didn't involve myself more in, in a number of their potentially triggering activities out of fear.
1: Through everything you've told me so far, it seems like, uh, anecdotally at least the, uh, experiences that you've had to deal with always come back to a fear that you have done harm to somebody else or that you may inflict harm on somebody else. Is that a common thread?
0: It, it, it is. It's often called hit-and-run OCD or harm OCD. It, it, it's a subvariant. There are many, um, you know, there are people who are more concerned about what happens to them. I've always said I have right. a very magnanimous form of OCD, which is just a joke because my therapist would point out to me that my real concerns were always about whether I'd have to sit with the anxiety, not that I was going to harm somebody else. And that's an important distinction. It, it's the same. The, the root obsession for everybody with OCD is am I going to have to sit with this anxiety forever? And so the anxiety for me is what if I unknowingly harm somebody? It might be for another person. What if I'm going to catch some horrific disease, but that rude obsession, that what if is still, what if I have to sit with that horrible uncertainty? A good friend of mine that I write about in, the, in my first book, Carol, um, spent much of her life thinking she was possessed because OCD, she's significantly older. She's now in her nineties. And for much of her life, there was no vernacular around anxiety disorders and OCD. And she had no explanation for most of her life as to why she would do what she would do. But she does things in patterns of three. And her doubt bully, if you will, would tell her, if you don't sip this water in sets of three or turn that light switch on and off three times as you come into the doorway, something horrible is going to happen. It's often called magical thinking. And for the longest time, I could not relate at all to Carol's OCD patterns, nor could she relate to mine, but at the crux of both of our cycles, this vicious cycle that we both had was this, what if dot, dot, dot. And for her, it was, what if something horrible happens to somebody I love because I didn't do this particular pattern for me, it was, Mm. what if I unknowingly caused this harm because I didn't go back and check on it? Same vicious cycle, dog chasing its tail.
1: It's something you said just a moment ago made me think about uh, the stereotypes that you uh, see in, you know portrayed in movies and in stories and so forth. And I was thinking about there was a movie with uh, Jack Nicholson in it. I can't remember exactly what I can't remember what the title was, but he was he was washing his hands constantly.
0: Steve, I don't know if you can hear me, but Big you are so I cannot hear you. You can't hear me now. I can hear you again.
1: Okay, I was just saying you were talking about something that. Something you said made me think about stereotypes in fiction, you know, in movies, yep. TV shows and so forth. And uh, I remember there was one movie. I don't even remember what it was called or what it was about. But Jack Nicholson was a guy. That, as good as it, uh, had, it gets. Huh? Good as it as gets. As good as yes, it gets. Where he's washing his hands constantly and he always had this soap and so forth. And 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 what about the TV show Monk? You know, he would, he had these little motor things that he would do obsessively. Uh, but other than that, he was a brilliant, you know, a brilliant detective. Does it bother you a little bit to see some of these stereotypes that are misportraying, or at least not showing, uh, the depth of a problem?
0: Well, you know, it, it's so interesting, Dave. When I first went public with my story, which would have been about 07, 08, um, Monk was Hugely popular, and I would get Damn. that question a lot. How do you feel about the TV show Monk? And I know there were people in the OCD community that were sort of offended by it and felt like it was just paying lip service to how difficult the challenge is and so forth. Um, for me, I saw it as a conversation starter, and if it allowed people to have a little bit of a window into my world, I thought that was very constructive. The only, my biggest complaint about Monk was the poor guy didn't get any help. There is help. There is hope for people with OCD and this poor guy never got the treatment that he needed. Um, as good as it gets, I thought portrayed a lot of the OCD very well, but you know, Jack Nicholson's character was also a real a-hole in the whole thing. And that's not necessarily a tra- trait that comes with OCD either. I like that's to portrayal. That's not helpful, that. right? Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that these portrayals often are very good conversation starters. I'd really like to see, as, as an OCD awareness advocate, I'd like to see the hope of treatment portrayed more, more broadly. That's, that's sort of less interesting from a media perspective to watch somebody go through therapy than it is to show them doing their compulsions. Um, but yeah, you know, the other thing that just bubbled up for me, Dave, when we were talking about when I first went public, do you remember when I came down to LA on that little book tour I was oh, doing yeah. and you schlepped me all over the place, that well, drove was more to helpful than stage. you know, Pardon me? you did, but that was more helpful than, you know, um, That was a scary time for me going public and just to have a a buddy in a car driving me around LA really helped a lot. And I I don't know if I've ever thanked you for that over the years. You didn't hit anybody. (laughs) I would have made you turn the car around. Trust me.
1: That was a fun day for me. I really enjoyed it. I sat out there in the parking lot while you were in doing an interview on the NPR station there. And uh, I was able to listen to that. And then you got in the car and we talked about the conversation and off we went to wherever else we went. Let's talk about the other book. Um, Honestly, Jeff, I wasn't even aware of this one, or maybe I had been aware of this, but I've forgotten. Uh, You wrote something else called When in Doubt, Make Belief. And uh, that goes beyond OCD. And I'm fascinated by that because I've always been fascinated by psychology. And there was a period of time when I was going into college and I thought, psychology is what I want to do. Then radio, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, swept me off my feet and... I gave up on college, but uh, tell us about that book.
0: Well, thanks for asking. And, and to make this make sense, I need to take you back to August of 1997. I was in Sacramento at that point and I was at my wits end and I have to share with you a story about what turned everything around for me. I was properly diagnosed at that juncture. I had been misdiagnosed a couple of times before that led up to my discovering who I am and who I wanted to be based on what I read in a book called The Boy You Couldn't Stop Washing, which was the first time that I recognized that I had OCD. So once I got myself to the correct diagnosis, I got myself to the correct treatment. But as I've shared with you, that treatment is really challenging. I mean, I joke about it being called torture therapy um, <laughs> because you are being asked to sit with your very worst fears. And I went through the motions of doing that, but I really didn't give my all to that process because I was lacking some motivation and I didn't know it at the time, but I didn't put my all into this. And I got into the state where I was really feeling a lot of pity for myself, to be quite honest, that no one or nothing could fix me. And I had been through several therapists. I had dismissed a couple who didn't fix me. That was my mindset. And I'd been on and off medications and I had read every book that I could about getting better from an anxiety disorder and no one or nothing could fix me. And and one night, a hot sticky night in August in Sacramento, I'm out in my backyard and I'm in my hammock and I'm staring up at the mighty heavens overhead and I hear myself blurting out these words, which make no sense to me at the time. I say, show me how to turn around this crazy life and I'll share my story with anyone who will listen. I thought, well, where did that come from? But it was pent up inside me. Yeah, was that, and Did that
1: literally come out of your mouth or was that it?
0: Literally, No, it, it literally came out of my mouth. Wow. I literally came out of my mouth as I'm just staring up at the stars overhead. I thought, whoa, where did that come from? And I waited a couple of days and to see if the instruction book came drifting down from the mighty heavens. It did not. <laughs> but Dave, something profound happened in the wake of what I've come to call my bargain with the stars. I turned that bargain on its head and I said to myself, you know what? I'm a guy who's comfortable behind a microphone. I'm comfortable talking to groups of people. I'm in a good position to share a success story about getting better from OCD. I am going to go public with my story and talk about getting better from OCD. Only one small problem. I had no success story to share, but I put the proverbial cart before the horse and I said to myself, you know what? I am going to get better so I can tell my story. And without calling it out as such back then, I identified what I've later come to call a greater good goal, something bigger than myself. Now, this might sound trite, but I'm going to tell you right here and right now that I strongly believe that purpose and service are much stronger motivators than doubt and fear. OCD is all about doubt and fear. My doubt bullies hallmark cards were doubt and fear. And when my doubt bully said jump, I would say, how high? I mean, I did not put myself in between the obsession and the compulsion. I just did that compulsion immediately. And what I realized was that if I could hit the pause button and find a way to be of service to other people and through, through that service, develop my own sense of purpose, I could stand up to my doubt bully. I didn't know a lot of this. This is sort of unfolded, but what I did know is I was going to take a year and I was going to journal everything about life with OCD. And in a way that only somebody with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, OCPD could do, which is something I also am challenged with, Um, I did all of my journaling, on little three by five cards that I stacked all around the house. I had three by five cards that were my success cards. I had my setback cards. I had my lessons learned cards. And every day for exactly 365 days between my, well, I forget which birthdays they were, but between my, it was an entire calendar year from one birthday to my other, the next, from 1997 to 1998, I journaled everything. And I also went back to my therapist whom I had fired because she wasn't fixing me. And I told her I'm ready to do the hard work and nothing magical at all happened during that year. Other than I had a motivating drive to get better. And that drive was to do something constructive with all the crap I had been through. So I journaled for a year and lo and behold, I got a lot better, Dave. Um, And I told myself, I'm going to do something with these these three by five cards at that point. And I spent another year writing a really bad first draft of what would become rewind, replay, repeat. Then I spent nine more years rewriting and rechecking and re-rewriting and re-rechecking that manuscript until the point where 10 years after my bargain with the stars, I went public. And when I went public, I went from about five people in my world knowing what was going on to anybody who wanted to spend 1395 on a book, to knowing what was going on. And that's, that's about the time that you and I were down in LA driving around doing some um, publicity talks. Yeah. And what happened, Dave, was that I discovered this principle that we help ourselves by helping others. Again, might sound trite, but I'm here to tell you it's as profound a principle as I've ever discovered. And what I came to find was that the more I got out there and shared my story, the more advocacy I poured myself into, the stronger I got. Now I was still doing the therapy. I was doing the ERP, but I had the motivation. I had the reason to stay in that pool of cold water. I had the reason to sit with the anxiety because either was something constructive I could do with it. And that's how I came to be fascinated by this whole principle.
1: Was it motivation or was it another form of obsession?
0: You know that's a great question, and something that all of us with OCD have to ask ourselves at all times is: Am I doing this as a form of compulsion, or am I doing this for something that is, in fact, productive in addressing my OCD? For me, the outreach has always been the latter. It's always been something that scares me, but but because it is an opportunity to help other people and develop my own sense of purpose it motivates me and it motivates me to do the hard work. What I've come to find is that usually fear and doubt will direct me to the comforting option, the compulsion. Even if it's just ephemeral, fear and doubt want me to find comfort where purpose and service want me to find a way to empower, whether it's to empower myself or to empower other people. I talk about purpose and service being opposite sides of the empowerment coin. That for me has been the motivation to do the hard work that has gotten me better over the years and then what happened is I started doing all this outreach and I networked with all these amazing people who were doing not only uh, mental health outreach but also physical health outreach, cancer survivors who were helping other cancer survivors. And the one thing that we shared, the the common piece for all of our advocacy, what I've come to call adversity-driven advocacy, is that we found this principle that the more we helped other people, the more we helped ourselves with motivation. And that led to the second book, When in Doubt, Make Belief, where I interviewed a bunch of researchers and other people who were doing this advocacy. And we all kind of shared what we believe were the, the, the underpinnings of this, this notion that we help ourselves by helping others. And then once the book came out, I continued to evolve that whole outreach to the point where I founded A2A back there, the logo in the background, Adversity to Advocacy, which is a nonprofit built on the whole principle that we help ourselves by helping others. And that's been the journey. And at every step of the way, a big part of my own therapy has just been finding the sense of purpose through this service that I am able to provide through the outreach afforded me by A2A and other mental health outreach.
1: Have you ever considered the possibility that maybe you are divinely inspired and that this was your purpose?
0: Absolutely. And, and divinely inspired from the standpoint of, I believe there's a, a bigger picture beyond what I can see. And again, my part is just to try to do something that allows me to develop my own sense of purpose and be of service to other people and then let go of the rest of it. The letting go is the toughest part for o- anybody with OCD. It's tough for anybody. Um, but that's been the, the, the faith-based piece of this whole thing is just trying to do something constructive with my time on earth. That is more productive than chasing my tail and going and turning the car around over and over again and checking my doors and windows.
1: So tell me just a little bit more about the, a two, a Alliance. You, you co-founded this thing. What is it?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's a, a relatively small nonprofit, but we've made it 11 years now and we have three mission statement purposes. The first is to network leading adversity-driven advocates. These are people who are established in their own advocacy arenas, cancer survivors, helping other cancer survivors, folks with depression who are helping others with depression and so forth. We've networked, I believe, 80, 85 of these leading advocates across the country. When I say we network them, we've brought them into our alliance and we try to support one another through that work. The second piece of our mission is to provide pathways to advocacy for others who are looking to step into advocacy. So we've created projects like Project Hope Exchange, which um, is an opportunity for people to call a number or to go to our website and use the online interface to record a 30-second audio message of hope. And what we've discovered through this project is that people who are leaving those messages are getting as much hope out of that process as the people that were coming to the exchange and listening to those message messages. Again, it's all about helping ourselves by helping others. And then we, we try to provide some podcasts and other opportunities for people who were stepping into advocacy to have an opportunity to use our platforms to share their stories. So that's the second piece. The third piece is to showcase the research that is behind all of this that suggests that this is more than experiential, this is empirically supported science. And there's this great body of empirical knowledge that's developing right now around purpose and service and resilience and empathy. And, you know, clinically conducted empirically driven studies are showing that altruism and service and empathy benefit us not only psychologically, but physiologically as well. And that's pretty cool stuff. So that, that's pretty yeah. much A2A a in a nutshell.
1: seems to me that through your, through your experiences, your development and your understanding of, of OCD and, uh, other things that may come into play for people, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, adjacent to their OCD seems to me that all, everything you're learning is taking you down a road to appreciate an appreciation of human nature that uh, most of us don't have things that we take for granted understanding that uh that uh, you know life is pretty special and we're all very unique and you know we need that we need to help each other in order to deal with some of the downside of our unique personalities
0: Yeah, it's so true, Dave. And as I share with you, back in 97, when I made my little bargain with the universe, I I called that particular time period of my life, my pity party years. And I felt sorry for myself because it wasn't fair that I had to deal with this OCD when so many people didn't. What I didn't realize at that juncture is we've all got our burdens. We've all got our demons. We've all got these challenges in life that we need to navigate. And you are right. you know, Coming to understand that and coming to understand that there's this universal thread through all of our challenges that if we can apply those challenges in constructive ways to help other people that's the magic sauce right there that's been a gift beyond anything i could ever have asked for
1: what's uh, what's in the future what are your plans
0: well, I have recently retired from radio after 30 yeah. plus years of doing this, and um, <laughs> it was a scary decision because as you know, once radio is in your blood, it's there. And it's only been a couple of months and I'm already missing parts of it. Um, but I've made this this leap of faith because I want to devote my, my time to running A2A and doing more mental health outreach. And I'm still piecing together what that looks like, but I know that that's why I'm here, uh, to, to circle back to something you said earlier about the, the divine nature of some of this work. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that this is my particular role to play and I'm going to do my best to, to play it out as best I can in the remaining years I've got in the, the career world.
1: How about a, how about a focused podcast?
0: Could happen. Yeah. Could happen. Another book maybe. For, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I never say never, but my family might might have some thoughts on what that takes out of dad slash yeah. um, husband. Sure.
1: Man, it has been a pleasure talking
0: with you. It really has. It's so has. good to catch up, Dave.
1: Well, you know, when we were working together, we weren't really working together. I was working in the mornings and you were working in the afternoons and we'd cross paths once in a while. Uh, but it wasn't until after, I guess, after I left and went to LA and then you came down to visit. That's where we really started to get, get connected a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I always had an immense appreciation for your talent and your professional abilities. Uh, but as I've gotten to know you personally, you're a special guy, and I'm I'm proud to call you my friend.
0: Oh, thank you, Dave. That means a lot to me. And, and I will say that, A, I've just always looked up to you as a broadcaster. I, I studied your morning show broadcast when I was at KFBK and learned a lot from you. I mean, I just, I love who you are as a broadcaster, but bigger than that, you are a guy that has never compromised his values in your career. And I've always admired that about you as well, Dave. You are the same guy on air and off. And again, you are driven by a professionalism and a passion for what you do that is is really unparalleled.
1: Thank you, Jeff Bell. Again, the books are called Rewind, Replay, Repeat. That's the first one that tells all about Jeff's experiences uh, with his OCD. And then the one we were just talking about all too briefly here. When in doubt, make believe. I highly recommend these. Whether or not you have any personal experience with OCD, it's just really great to understand uh, some of the, the the psychology of human nature and some of the things that people do have to uh, deal with. Jeff, we'll talk again, okay?
0: I look forward to it, Dave. Thanks for the opportunity. Good to see you, my friend.